The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Joe Strombel led a full life, a newspaper man in the best tradition, a great credit to the Fourth Estate. It didn't matter if the bombs in the war zone were falling. It didn't matter how high up the political scandal went or how many big corporations or small-time racketeers leaned on him. Whatever the risk, if there was a story there, Joe went after it. And he usually got it. Well, I was reading when the story broke about Prince Charles and that made him persona non grata with the royal family. Except with Diana. They always remain good friends. Yeah, yeah. did love a woman. <laughs> hey, do you know, um, you know he started as a police reporter? Yeah. yeah, he was a bloody good one, one of the yeah. best. Maybe the best. I got trapped with Joe once in Afghanistan. Yeah. Now we were going to be shot any moment by the Taliban until, typically, Joe found someone to bribe. <laughs> so he could escape. Not with his own money, though. No, he got, oh, it, on yeah. he got, he got it on expenses. That's 10%, 10%. Yeah. 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 But it did involve us uh, getting out wearing burqas. Right. Yeah. And but we lived to write another day. Everyone loved him. Yeah. Not always a British intelligence. He got, he got the information before anyone else. Yeah, he did. Not Richard Nixon, huh? Well, wherever you are now, Joe. Yeah. Won't be the same without you, mate. Yeah. Joe. Joe, Joe Strongwell, huh? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 20, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Mm-hmm. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today, where, as always, 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join in on our conversation today, which is going to be two quite different themes for each half of the show today, Robert. Yeah. And no, they overlap a little bit. Well, they overlap a bit, but uh, I guess one would be about the news and the other would be about it's that time of year when it's take back the night marches and we're going to take a look at the whole issue of gender wars and... The whole issue of rape itself and how it's been transforming itself in the law courts and in, in the, what the things you hear in the paper. And, of course, we want to... Uh, that's what we'll be looking at in the second half of the show today. But first, we're going to be taking the varnish off the truth. Is that right, Robert? Yes. All the news that's fit to print. And all the news that's, that's not. not fit to print. <laughs> you had an interesting experience last week, didn't you? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I interviewed a couple of very interesting people, uh, Lars Hedegaard and Ingrid Kalkfist, who are starting a new newspaper. But I'll get into that in the second quarter of the hour. First, I want to talk about, just in general, newspapers and the news and the truth. Now, if you're over 30 years old, like we are... You'll remember the, for the Cold War. <laughs> you remember the Cold War, the Soviet Union. Remember, there were two pro- predominant newspapers in the Soviet Union at the time, Pravda, which in Russian, of course, means the truth, and Izvestia, which uh, means the news. And a popular Russian saying at the time was, in the truth, there is no news, and in the news, there is no truth. Meaning that the people knew they were getting lies from their newspapers. You know, a recent Mitt Romney press conference made me think of these old Soviet newspapers. Uh, before Romney walked onto stage, the journalists were patiently awaiting his arrival, and someone left on a recorder. 
and surreptitiously picked up a conversation between a reporter from, uh, I believe it was CNN, and another unidentified reporter from a competing bureau. The two were collaborating on how to frame a question so as to inflict as much damage as possible on the Republican presidential candidate, trying to get the wording just right, as you were. <laughs> uh, it was the kind of question that if uh, one dignifies it with an answer, he's automatically wrong, the, the when did you stop beating your wife type of question. And they were also colluding so that even if one was not called upon, the other was then, uh, who was called upon, could then maximize their odds that the question will be get asked and the damage done. So it's these kinds of things which brings journalism into disrepute. And in uh, reading Pravda or Zvestia, every Russian knew how to read between the lines. It usually meant turning the reporting 100 degrees on its head. If the report read that the wheat crop was the biggest in Soviet history, they knew to expect a famine. <laughs> if the paper reported that the war in Afghanistan was going well, they knew to expect to dig more graves for their soldiers. And decades have passed, and while both papers, actually both papers still exist, they have become more like Western papers where occasionally there's the truth in the news and news in the truth. You know, our distrust of newspapers perhaps stems from the label we give them, newspapers. What do you do when That's you pick up a newspaper? Point. You expect the news, right? right? We expect, since they're called newspapers... Take the S out and just make it, well, it's just new paper. <laughs> new paper. <laughs> In fact, it's not always the case that what we're reading is news. Every single article may have a kernel of truth in it, but wrapped around the, the morsel of news are countless layers of opinion designed to propagate and validate the political and philosophic agenda of the reporter, the editor, or the publisher. We have to read between the lines. We have to peel back those layers to try to find out the truth. And often it means reading more than one newspaper to see what are the commonalities in the, uh, in the report. And, uh, the agenda, of course, of most newspapers in the West is primarily on the left. Even, I would say, um, the National Post. To a great degree, a lot of their reporting is of a conservative bent. But to you and I, conservatism, liberalism, in this country at least, are both left-wing ideologies. We've talked about that endlessly on this show. The tactic of propagating the agenda begins with what news or opinion pieces to write about and what news or opinion pieces to ignore. And I think that's the first filter of the truth. We, you and I both know there's a lot of stuff going on out there politically especially that never ever gets reported even though the people responsible for the activity make sure that the press know about it. But the editors stop it. Or the it's, reporters it's of, stop it. It's one of the most difficult things that you and I do in preparing for this show. Sometimes we spend longer deciding what the subject will be, the topic for the day, and, and deciding what is relevant to keep in there. Because we're just like any other industry in the world that has limited resources, right? And we, we walk into this studio every week knowing we've got one hour. Mm -hmm. So you have 60 minutes, you divide them into four parts, what can you fit it? You know, it, it, it almost, a lot of it becomes technically necessary. There's like, a technical filter, no doubt about it. I, I acknowledge that. And of course, that's that's just the truth of newspapers as well. They actually have so many inches to fill sure. just as we have so many if minutes to really fill. If really important and we miss it, well then we use our next hour to get but it But the in. thing <laughs> is that that's not the filter I'm talking about. No, that's a filter that everybody has regardless of the political bent of the paper or the radio show. I'm talking about 
the mental filter, the ideological filter that gets put on the news items. Uh, shall we cover um, the taxpayers' coalition uh, putting a rally out in front of City Hall? Or shall we cover a, a new report from uh, Take Back the Night March or something like that? And of course, they're going to cover the Take Back the Night when in disregard, as if it never even happened. 100 or 200 people marching on City Hall demanding lower taxes. And we've seen, you yeah, and I have seen I this actually happen. You know, if a left-wing darling, just for example, take uh, David Suzuki, and he speaks at a local university, you can rest assured it'll get full coverage, uh, reflecting positively on his message as if it is the unvarnished truth of doom and gloom unless we reign in capitalism. Uh, if, however, a respected member of... Um, for example, the Ayn Rand Institute flies up from California to talk at the university about Islamic totalitarianism. It goes unreported as if it never occurred. Mm -hmm. And yet, just a few months ago, you and I were in the auditorium directly below us here with hundreds, maybe about two, three hundred people in attendance where just such a thing happened. I didn't read about it in the paper, did you? No, it wasn't even mentioned. No, of course it not. It didn't happen then, you know. If it wasn't it written, didn't it didn't happen. happen. Yeah, it didn't happen. That's how the news works. From the selection process, the journalist moves on to the choice of words to convey their agenda. For example, calling the Alberta oil sands tar sands for ex evokes a negative impression on the project. By the way, tar is a derivative of coal. In Europe, it's a derivative of the pine <laughs> tree, you know, uh, pine oh, yeah? tar. Uh -huh. But for uh, you and I here in America and Canada, we, we say tar is a derivative of oil, a coal rather, and not the product which is being extracted in the Alberta oil sands. So, when you hear a journalist or a newspaper talk about the tar sands, you already know that they have a political... Yeah, what he means is tar and feather. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Just the feathers are missing right now. And then there's the contrived controversy, the crusade. The crusade is easy to pick out. It usually involves picking up one of the myriad of reports from one of the any number of thousands of left-wing organizations or government bureaucracies out there. One example might be the director of a local health unit reporting that secondhand smoke causes cancer. Okay, that's a fact, sure. But the crusade is on. It ends when the paper has successfully caused the government to outlaw smoking in restaurants, bars, office buildings, cars, and even homes where children are present. That's the crusade I'm talking about. I heard about Second another government. one. Heard another one on the radio coming into the show today, where the uh, was it a deputy coroner for Canada has called on um, municipalities to lower the speed limit in their cities and towns from 50 kilometers an hour down to 40 and even 30 kilometers Absurd. an hour. And that will, of course, prevent pedestrian deaths. No doubt. As a matter of fact, if you prevent people from yeah. driving cars whatsoever, there'll be no pedestrian I, deaths. I heard the guy this morning going, yeah, the statistics show it. Well, of course they do, and the statistics would show <laughs> if you took every car off the road, no one would get hurt. I guarantee the statistics would show that. Yep. And so the, per the issue isn't the statistics. The issue is what is the purpose of the roads? And they're changing the purpose of the roads to be a place for people to walk so they can get hit by cars and not die by getting away if they get hit, <laughs> instead of being a place to get, uh, you know, a means to get from one place to another. You know, some it's of the greatest crusades, which conform to the left-wing anti-capitalist uh, egalitarian agendas of the press, are global warming and multiculturalism. The anthropogenic global warming scam continues with little abatement to this day, even though in scientific circles, and you and I know this, it's been discredited, and this is from today's New York Times. 
quote, scientists consider the rapid warming of the region to be a, and they're talking about the Arctic here, to be a consequence of the human release of greenhouse gases, and they see the melting as an early warning of big changes to come in the rest of the world. Unquestioned, you know, scientists say, well, I'm sorry, but you and I have found out that there are 50,000 scientists in the United States alone who, who, who say have 50, said that anthropogenic things. global warming <laughs> is not a factor right. in global warming. So, you know, get with it, New York Times. It's one of the first duties of a newspaper editor to sell papers. I understand that. It's interesting that. you picked the New York Times because that comes up a little bit in my part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I understand they got to sell papers, and I'd agree with it. But to sell papers by appealing to ignorance, by lying, deceiving, or by using your position as a reporter or editor to propagate your agenda in the guise of news is just wrong. It may, be, uh, it may have been the author and journalist George Orwell who said... Quote, during times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. And there are a few, there are a few revolutionary newspaper men out there, I know that, and, and even columnists, editors, and publishers, who have what is called journalistic integrity, and who report the news as objectively as they can. There are, they exist out there, I know that. And one of these is Ingrid Kalkvist from Sweden. I met Ingrid in Toronto on Saturday and did an interview with her regarding the launch of a new newspaper. But I'll have more to say about that, as I said before, uh, a little later on. But we're going to hear a clip from my interview with her in a moment. Uh, Preceding that, though, a little short clip from the movie The Fountainhead, where the architect Howard Rourke tries to comfort his mentor, Henry Cameron, who's given up on his profession as an architect. And at the heart of Cameron's despair is the local newspaper, The Banner, which has as its motto, the newspaper for the people.
I've been working as a freelance journalist for uh, 10 or 15 years and uh, the last four or five years I couldn't really make make money out of it anymore because the stories that I want to write nobody wants to buy and publish because such as what kind such of as you, I mean like for example false accusations of rape um, the the kind of strange things that goes with feminism um, the um, what's it called you know abusive spouses in Sweden we believe that it's own it's always uh, men beating up women actually a lot of studies shows that it is it goes both ways and I mean I had guys willing to talk about this and have their picture in the newspaper and telling their story not one Swedish newspaper would buy this story and that is a great story you, you know when you become a journalist you get uh, told by your teachers that dog beats dog bite man no news man man bite dog great news yes. so they really should you know jump to it and say well what a great story Ingrid is that really true and I had all the facts and I had everything and they just said we're not interested in Canada and the United States we call them the mainstream media as you have just then and there is a characteristic of the mainstream media that would be not to be provocative over the prevailing liberal left-wing views of uh, the powers mm. that be, the establishment. You have that in Sweden as well, apparently. Well, of course. So that is the impetus for this. Yeah, that's is this why. like a, a Fox News of Sweden or a Sun, Sun Media of yeah, Sweden? Yeah, I think yeah. you could say that. And I think many people are starving for this kind of news. You know, there was a poll uh, just a, a few months ago, and the Swiss were asked which um, people they trust. And, the, you know, the the group with the lowest trust rate was journalists. Only 24% of the Swedes believe what the journalists write and report on on uh, TV and radio. And what does the Swedish journalist do? I mean, they, they should think, what am I doing wrong? Something is absolutely wrong here. Why don't people believe me? No, they just go out and say, you readers are stupid. You don't understand that we know this. You don't understand journalism, but I do. So, I mean, I think that people are starving for some real news and the truth. Publish and be damned. And that, of course, was Ingrid Karlqvist, co-editor of a new newspaper that's to come out of uh, Denmark. And um, she's one frustrated uh, journalist, I can tell you that. Seeing the she's news in front of her and nobody willing to, to publish it. Um, you know, I've seen this in many manifestations here in this country as well. I don't know if she was quite correct in saying you can't make money on those kinds of stories. I think that's possible, but I don't think... Not in Sweden, I think it was her point. Well, true. I think you might say that here too, to some degree. We have the same phenomenon here. Well, no, to put it into context, she was talking about the fact that she couldn't make money selling to the mainstream media. Understood, yes. Now that's why they're setting up a new newspaper, hopefully, to make money. Well, maybe that's what you should tell us about, is that new news? Well, yeah, I'll finish it with that. uh, Um, But I'm going to preface it with talking about the fourth estate, which is what, of course, the media mm -hmm. is, or the press. Because um, Edmund Burke in 1787 said that there were three estates in Parliament, but in the reporter's gallery yonder, there sat a fourth estate more important far than they all. 
And of course, that's the press. Uh, the first three, I, I think, were the uh, the royalty, the clergy, and the, and the parliament themselves. So the fourth estate. Um, <clears throat> He was referring to uh, is the press which shone a light on the goings-on in Parliament so that the truth is revealed to the masses and that debates of government were out in the open and couldn't be concealed. So the force but the state became a powerful check on government going back hundreds of years. And today, that check is exercised differently depending on which party sits to the right of the speaker, which, by the way, is where we get our left and right. Whoever sits to the right of the speaker is the government. If it's a conservative government, the press is usually critical and even cynical. If it's a liberal government, the press becomes an ideological friend acting so as not to embarrass their government. Few reporters treat all politi political parties with objectivity. They have lost their integrity and are so blatant advocates of an extreme left-wing ideology. You think this country's left-wing, Bob? <laughs> got to read some papers coming out of Europe. They failed to report gang rapes by Muslim youth so as not to denigrate Islam. Failed to report on any evidence against anthropogenic climate change because it would be not favorable to their anti-capitalist agenda. Lars Hedegaard, president of the International Free Press Society, and Ingrid Karlqvist, uh, who we just heard from, are the editors of a new weekly newspaper to be launched this January coming in 2013 called Dispatch International. It's the intent of the uh, the editors to capitalize on the betrayal of the mainstream media to the um, to report the truth. In the words of Mr. Hedegaard, quote, the truth and nothing but. Let's take this head on. It's the ambition of Dispatch International to bring you the news and analysis that you need to make sense of our times and which are either neglected or played down by the mainstream media. And if any of them happen to surface on occasion, they are rarely put into meaningful context. Unquote. The pair have published a limited test issue in August, and you have a copy in front of you there, Bob. Mm -hmm. um, and here's a sample of some of the headlines from that edition. Left extremism, the sure way to get ahead in Denmark. UN climate panel in big trouble. Muslim population in Sweden and Denmark double in 14 years. Denmark, rotten economy. Muhammad, the vanishing warlord. Sweden's constitution changed in secret. That's a fantastic article by Ingrid. And Israel, the little superpower. It's a fresh, refreshing look at the world from the eyes of journalists not afraid to report the truth. It's interesting, too. It's also a broadsheet. It's a broadsheet, actual and, physical yeah, newspaper. And um, has a quote by Thomas Jefferson in the right. Now, The only thing which may come close to it in Canada, I think, is the Sun Media on television uh, with commentators like Ezra Levant, Brian Lilly, Michael Korn, who don't pull punches and talk about just the very same things Lars and Ingrid are talking about in this newspaper. And Europe, as you know, doesn't have a history of individualism capitalism or free speech and hopefully with Dispatch International which has as its motto as you just pointed out correctly Bob uh, from Thomas Jefferson freedom of the press cannot be limited without being lost Europe can find the truth and while the paper begins its first print run this coming January and can be found now online it's already up online okay, I didn't know that yeah at uh, www.dispatch-international.com where you can subscribe, and I would encourage people to do that if you are interested in knowing the truth about what's going on in Europe today. You can go to that website, dispatch-international.com, 
and uh, click on subscribe and go from there. Now, I've interviewed both Lars Hedegaard and Ingrid Karlqvist last Saturday, and uh, I'll be posting the uh, videoed interviews on Just Rate's YouTube channel at www.youtube.com forward slash Just Rate Media. And, of course, on our website at justratemedia.org. So if you want to find uh, the interviews with these people, I think uh, they're about a half an hour each. They're somewhat in-depth about their new newspaper and very interesting to see the frustration from these uh, journalists. And, of course, Lars himself was uh, brought before a human rights tribunal in the courts in uh, Denmark for alleged hate speech. Of course, he was acquitted unanimously by the Supreme Court there. And that just shows some of the things that these people are willing to go through to report the truth. The truth. Now, coming at the bottom of the hour, and uh, the next clip that you'll hear is a bit of my interview with Lars Hedegaard, co-editor of Dispatch International. And following that, uh, what do we have, Bob? Well, we'll be on the other side when we come back from the break. We'll be talking about, uh, well, I guess males need not apply. We're becoming obsolete, Robert, and we'll be talking about that. Okay. okay. We'll be back right after this. Now, on the front page on this, your... Um Example copy. You don't just talk about the Islamic question. You talk about um, climate change. You talk about Israel. Oh, yeah. We talk about Obama. So we talk about the uh, extreme left, and we uh, we talk about Danish economy. Uh, uh, we also have uh, articles uh, on culture, etc. The but the back uh, the backside article, uh, back page article is is a great piece by. Professor Hans Janssen, uh, the preeminent, I would say, expert on, on, on Mohammed. Mohammed in big trouble, it's called. <laughs> and he is indeed in big trouble because he probably didn't exist. So, so uh, um, that, is a, that is a great piece. And uh, we, um, we have uh, articles in Jewish uh, archaeology in the Holy Land. The new face of Christianity, the Vikings. Uh, so it's rather eclectic in, in its scope. It, 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 is a, it is a total newspaper. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, our intention is not uh, to, to uh, concentrate uh, on, on Islam. It's, it's supposed to be an all-round newspaper that uh, will give you um, a fair idea of what's happening in the world. We want the articles to be objective. Uh, we we do not go in for a, a propaganda or immoral speech. Uh, the term will be subdued. The real uh, dynamite in this paper will be uh, the uh, issues that we cover and the information that we we bring to the public. Uh, we're trying to or intend to cover. All the news uh, that would be fit to print if the press was any uh, worth anything, but they don't. Uh, most of these articles, I would say all of them, uh, in this test issue are, are brushed under the carpet by the mainstream press. Uh, they don't see it as their, uh, their role to enlighten uh, and inform the public. They want to, they treat the public like children. They have to be brought up. They have to mend their ways. They have to be indoctrinated to to uh, to conform to the way the um, journalists think, and this is not our approach. Now that that um, banner headline that you said, uh, all the news that's fit to print, as the New York Times. Yes. Um, that's funny you say that because the word "fit" seems to be changing day to day, so that now, if it has to do with, for example, the prevalence of 
um, <clears throat> rapes in Sweden. That's mm -hmm. not going to get covered because that's not a fit topic to cover, it seems. Absolutely. We have an item on that in this, in this Maybe paper. you should have said all the news that's fit to print or not fit to print. Because it Fine. doesn't matter. <laughs> well, right. We have, an, uh, we have a, um, an article here on, on uh, rapes in, um, in Sweden. Immigrants behind 78% uh, uh, of Swedish rapes on page two. And even though that may be a, a verifiable fact, do you think that this is going to be inflaming to some people? Yes, I do. But I mean, so be it. Offending to some people? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because free speech, to be free speech, has to cover offensive speech as well. It has. I mean, I don't see anything especially offensive in, in reporting the, uh, the facts, but... Uh, no, I, I didn't I, mean to suggest yeah. that it did, but there are some people out there who will take offense at the facts. And, and, and it's, not, it's not a surprise. I mean, they've had decades of, of, of uh, lies and, and, and uh, um, hiding in the truth, so it, it will be offensive to some people to read the truth. Uh, but that's the only way out of, of this uh, situation we find ourselves in. In 1942, I had already discovered women. Ah, he kissed me! He kissed me! That's the second time this month. Step up here. What did I do? Step up here. What did I do? You should be ashamed of yourself. Why? I was just expressing a healthy sexual curiosity. Six-year-old boys don't have girls on their minds. I did. For God's sake, Savvy, Edward Floyd speaks of a latency period. Well, I never had a latency period. I can't help it. <laughs> one of Woody Allen's early movies, Annie Hall, of course. One of Great. the famous movies. And uh, I'll tell you, after what I've been reading in the papers, all in the National Post, and uh, for, for that matter, uh, maybe we males aren't even going to be necessary soon, certainly if some people have their way. And what I thought was interesting is that most of the writers of these articles were males. I ran across three very contrasting columns, out all, all out of the National Post, and all originally published in the New York Times as well, which was interesting from what you were saying in the first part of the show there, Robert. And I'd like to just summarize them briefly as possible before we get into our next segment, which will be after the next break. And the three articles were Men, Who Needs Them? That's the headline by Greg Hampikian uh, on August 28th. Why Men Fail? by David Brooks on September 13th. And Why Fathers Really Matter by Judith Shulovitz on September 12th. Now, the two people who are opposed to men here are the males, and the one who says the fathers are important is the woman. Right, or interesting in Very and of telling, itself. Yeah. The first article, um, Men Who Needs Them, suggests that men are no longer necessary because technology makes it possible for women alone to continue the human species without men. Quote, since women are both necessary and sufficient for reproduction, and men are neither, fathers can be absent. They can be at work, at home, in prison, or at war, living or dead. Fathers of our, are of great benefit, but that is a far cry from necessary and sufficient for, re for reproduction. If all the men on earth died tonight, the species could continue on frozen sperm. 
yeah, until the <laughs> until the freezer goes bad, eh? And then the species ends. What, what a load of rubbish! Oh, I tell you, what a load of rubbish! And and, and the opposite could be said true for the uh, the eggs. You can keep them on ice and, and have well, apparently them. not according to to this study here. But if the women disappear, it's extinction. And then the article goes on to note that poverty is what hurts children, not the number or the gender of parents. So I thought about that for a minute. That would mean then that no parent would be acceptable, too, if the number or gender of parents doesn't matter. You've got no parents, as long as you've got money. <laughs> oh, man. It also notes that women have been a majority of college graduates since the 1980s and that, quote, women live longer, are healthier, and are far less likely to commit a violent offense. Now, that actually may be true. Um, I know that they live longer. A healthier, I don't know. Um, there are certainly are fewer of them in, in prisons. This was true, I think, in the past. I think it's all changing and coming around to about equal now that women are smoking as often as men, working as often as men, and, and a lot of that is changing. Hmm. But nevertheless, and also the idea that they're less likely to commit a violent offense, we don't know that for sure. I don't. I even think your guest in the first half there was kind of putting a doubt on, on that that, That's right. That she was saying that there's as, not at necessarily as many, but there's certainly a lot of spousal abuse committed by sure. women. And the second column, this is the one that says, um, Why Men Fail by David Brooks, argues that men fail because, quote, thanks to their lower skills, men are dropping out of the labor force. Now, here's an eye-opening stat. In 1954, 96% of American men between ages 25 and 54 worked. Today, that number is down to 80%. That's dramatic. Only 4% didn't work in 1954. David Brooks, the author, argues that it is the information age economy that rewards traits that, for, get this, neurological and cultural reasons, women are more likely to possess. He then refers to a book, The End of Men, by Hannah Rosen, whose thesis is that women adapt better than men to new circumstances. Quote, 40 years ago, men and women adhered to certain ideologies, what it meant to be a man or a woman. Young women today, Rosen argues, are more like clean slates, having abandoned both feminist and pre-feminist conceptions. Apparently, you know, it's the women who support, it's the women, get this, who support the hookup culture. It allows them to have sex and fun without any time-consuming distractions from their careers. Women embrace the social and sexual rules that they that give them freedom to focus on their professional lives, end quote. You know, what I find disgusting about this analysis is that he's painting everybody with a brush she. that is so, or she's painting everybody with a brush that is so broad. Um, if, if you or I or oh, anybody sorry, no, out there, uh, if you or I or anybody out there had said that women belong uh, barefoot, naked in the kitchen, because of their physical attributes, and men belong out there working on the farm and all that, we'd be taken as fossils. And yet, here's somebody saying that women, uh, you know, have these characteristics and are suited for these uh, jobs, and men have these characteristics and are therefore suited for these jobs. It's the exact same um, sin that is being committed you know, here. You know, that is painting everybody with a brush uh, that a social engineer just loves to do. It, it is what's popular, too, you know. Like, you know, it's... A self-effacing thing that a lot of men get into too. You see it on television. You see it in commercials. You know, oh, yes. guys don't do any housework at all. Apparently, oh no, they're idiots. You know? In yeah. commercials, all the guys are idiots. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. All my life, I was always a person in the house that did the housework. <laughs> 
Uh, now, the third column takes exactly the opposite stance as the first, arguing that fathers really do matter and also making it via a biological case. Now, this is, quote, modern biology is making clearer by the day that a man's health and well-being have a measurable impact on his future children's health and happiness, reads the byline. Whether a man's genes are good or bad, whatever that means in this context, his children's bodies and minds will reflect lifestyle choices that he has made over the years, even if he made those choices long before he ever imagined himself strapping on a baby Bjorn. Doctors have been telling men for years that smoking, drinking, and recreational drugs can lower the quality of their sperm. What doctors should probably add is that the health of unborn children can be affected by what and how much men eat, the toxins they absorb, the traumas they endure, their poverty or powerlessness, and their age at the time of conception. In other words, what a man needs to know is that his life experience leaves biological traces on his children. Even more astonishingly, those children may pass those traces along to their children. A new field of epigenics has emerged that suggests, quote, that our physical and mental tendencies were not set in stone during the Pleistocene age, as evolutionary psychology sometimes seems to claim. Rather, they're shaped by the life we lead in the world we live in right now. That's quite a change in thinking, wouldn't you say, Robert? It sounds like Lamarckian evolution. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's nonsense. Well, I, I shouldn't say it's nonsense. I don't know the data they're talking about, but it does sound uh, Lamarckian. And if anybody knows evolution, they know what I'm talking about. Well, th I'm leaving a lot of this, the, the technical aspects of this article out. It was more than a page long in the National Post, and you know, more than a full newspaper size. And it repeats the message via all sorts of other complex environmental and sociological studies. And one of which found that, for example, when boys, young boys, ate badly during the years right before puberty, like ate badly, okay, between the ages of 9 and 12, their sons as adults had lower than normal rates of heart disease. Isn't that interesting? Interesting, what? but then again, this, you know what I'm thinking of right now? What? Correlations and causality. True. You know, I mean, I'd like to see the studies that said that. Well, there's more in that, yeah. And we can get, we, I could spend the whole hour on it, but they're talking about the experiments they've done with mice and all that. But also they found that when boys ate too well during that period, their grandsons had higher rates of diabetes. So, And they found all sorts of interesting, as you say, associations, um, given different foods and cultures that they're trying to now track down. I don't know what, but you get the general idea. I sense that there's some new diet and lifestyle fad in the making. You know, these ones will be based on something that you can't prove, like promising, you know, that your children five generations down will be very health healthy if you do X today, <laughs> or that you'll save the planet, or that you'll have an afterlife if you do certain things on this earth. Okay. You know, like promising those things that you'll never, ever know about if they ever should happen. Uh, that's where we are for now. I want to continue now on the other side of the break when we come back and take a look at what's happening to the whole legal field of, you know, the politics of rape and rape as politics. This is a very serious subject, and uh, we'll be back right after this. So I was watching a little bit of Oprah the other night. I don't really like that show. My girlfriend likes it, and I want to get laid, so, you know. No, no, you pick your battles. You know what I like about that show? They always examine relationships on that show. You know what I realized? Whenever they do it on those talk shows, 90% of the time, the dude is always wrong. It's unbelievable. Two people, 90% of the time, guy's always wrong. 
He's always like, this woman is always like totally innocent, like, I was just trying to make him some chocolate chip cookies. And he didn't think there was enough chocolate chips in the cookies, so he started beating me with the cookie pan. It was horrible. And the guy's like always the biggest moron ever, like, well, what? I wanted some cookies. Scared. Why don't you just tell me what's wrong? I was raped once. As a matter of fact, it happened right here in this room. I lived here once. He came in through there off the fire escape. held a knife to my throat and said, if I made any noise, he'd cut my tongue out. And he tied me to the bed. He took his time, six hours. My God. Was he young? They get this guy? No. Actually, it was a boyfriend of mine. To tell you the truth, I slept in most of it. So, there you are. So, there you are. Was that really a rape that she just described? Or was it true lust? I don't know. I recall when I first heard, watched that scene, that's actually from a very dark comedy called After Hours with Roseanne Arquette. Have you ever seen it? Nope, I haven't. Um, there she was describing her unimaginable experience, you know, and, and getting, I was getting sucked right into feeling both the horror and sympathy for her until she drops the bombshell about it being her boyfriend and her sleeping through the whole thing, right? And what she might have meant in her case was, well, it was unwanted sex, which is, you know, what a lot of rape is being called today. Which it certainly is, isn't a black is, and white definition, no, is it? No. And whether it was rape or not could only depend upon the answer to a single question. Was there consent? If the answer is yes, then there was no rape. If no, then it was a rape. Uh, you know, none or any of the specific details of her experience in full context could be de declared as rape or just sex simply on the basis of that action, right? It's, you can't tell by the action. It's all about the consent. Consent between adults, as children are not part of this conversation until they reach the age of consent, which is both the qualifier and determinant point at which they become adults. So it's consent, and if only it were that simple, as you say, it should be, but it isn't. And that's because the world is replete with people who see no distinction between consent and force when it suits their own subjective views of sexuality and sexual relationships. Add to that, that the deadly mix of trying to codify every nuance of intimate relationships in law. And before you know it, you know, you're asking yourself just who's raping who. And it gets like that in some cases. I've seen a lot of reporting going on in, in, in the National Post on this, too. In many ways, the word rape has been trivialized by and through this social legal process. And the word today has become a weapon, almost like, uh, you know, racist, scab, sexist, those kinds of words. Such has become the politically correct sensitivity of language. You, you know, you, you, you don't joke about rape anymore, but you can still joke about death. 
and other horrible things in life can be subject of humor. But not that. So I thought we'd take a look at the history of, of the whole practice of rape. Very interesting. Remembering Women Made Victims in War by Magdalena Kuba, London Free Press, July 18th. And she's a PhD candidate here at Western in history. And she wrote that it's hard to believe that rape has only been recognized as a crime against humanity since 1998. When it comes to war, history tends to focus on tales from the battlefield. What is less well known is the impact of war on women and children. July 30th was the 70th anniversary of the day of protest against the victimization of Polish women by the Nazis. Since the start of war in 1939, countless thousands of women, including teenagers, were captured by the Nazis and sent to German factories as forced laborers and worse. On May 20, 1941, a letter written by a 17-year-old Polish girl to her mother in Poland reached the Polish Information Center in London, England. The girl had been sent to a German public house, the euphemism for a brothel, and described the fate that she and thousands of other women faced. Farewell, Mother Dearest, I will not see you again. We Polish girls in Germany serve only as mattresses for Nazi soldiers. We are all infected. There isn't a night that goes by where one of us isn't executed. I know what awaits me. I am very sick and cannot walk. The tragedy of mass rape was well documented by the Polish language press in Canada and in the United States. News reports made plain the fact that rape was used to breed out the Poles. Polish women were classified as inferiors, but their children by German men received German citizenship rights. And because the targets of these rapes were primarily Gentiles, some women tried to hide their true identity by wearing the Star of David to avoid being targeted as sex victims. Remarkably, even in the midst of the Holocaust, some women believed it was safer to be a Jew than a Gentile. Isn't that an amazing story? It is. Did you know about that? I did not. You know. Now, under... Indifferent bystanders, another headline act, this, is, this one's 2009. Crowd looks on as girl 15 gang rape, police say. Barbaric act, written by Nick Allen, uh, National Post, October 30th. This is again, ni- 2009. Los Angeles, too. <clears throat> a 15-year-old girl was gang raped by up to 10 teenagers outside a California high school homecoming dance as others laughed and took photographs. Up to 20 passerbys may have seen the crime happening and failed to report it as the girl, described as a devout church-going honor student, was subjected to an ordeal lasting two and a half hours outside the high school in Richmond near San Francisco. The story goes on to describe how up to 10 young men took part in the rape while others watched and took cell phone photos. None reported the attack to police. The crime was discovered only when a woman at a nearby party uh, phoned police to say that two of the suspects were bragging about their role in the attack, which was still going on at the time. The victim was then found near a picnic table close to the school. She remains in hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. This was, again, 2009. The paper reported that four youths aged 15, 16, 17, and 19 were charged with rape, and because they acted in concert, they were eligible for life in prison. That's what's going to happen to them. Good. And the, you know, quote, there's something about the coldness of it, the attitude of both the people involved and the people who saw or knew about it, Deputy District Attorney Dara Cashman said. It's just very cold. But things were apparently pretty hot in the courtroom where the accused appeared, apparently having to wear bulletproof vests to protect them from angry members of the public. Beyond this legal response, the political response to the event turned into a debate about passing laws to force people to report witnessed crimes. 
as if that would somehow <laughs> address the root problem. The superficiality of the debate can already be seen in the existing California law at the time in 2009 on forced witnessing. California does have a law that requires people to report to police any information they have about the sexual assault of children under the age of 14, but there's no law requiring, requiring them to do the same for victims over that age. Is that weird or is that weird? It's just very offensive that there's no statute we can use to show that we condemn their behavior, Police Lieutenant Mark Gagan told USA Today. Now, it seems to me, isn't the law that puts them in jail for life the statute they, that, that tells, tells them that we disapprove of that? Why do they want to go further than that? You see, it never ends with the punishment for the crime. No, you know? it seems that they want to... Uh uh, make criminals out of people who are passing by who didn't even know what's going on necessarily or you know what if what if you're just walking down the sidewalk you saw that's right <laughs> a, a, a commotion going on you don't take notice of it or whatever you've, you know and then, now you're all of a sudden a criminal i guess mind you I, I i do feel rather uncomfortable about people who are watching that knowing what's going on and not that's, reporting it it's stunning to me i think that in that case that, the that girl may a have a problem. civil case against those people Quite possibly. Now, of course, you heard about the issue of the Missouri uh, U.S. Senate candidate Todd Akin at the Republican, or before the Republican convention, uh, who made a remark using the word rape in such a way as to prompt U.S. President Obama to respond at the White House, rape is rape, he said. But, of course, we already know that. Of course, rape is rape. But what is he saying when he says that? He's basically saying, you know, there's only one definition of the word and you can't have other different definitions. Aiken said in a television interview that women have biological defenses to prevent pregnancy in cases of legitimate rape, <laughs> making legal abortion rights unnecessary. What a what an insane. What a moron. <laughs> Aiken said he was talking about forcible rape, adding rape is never legitimate. Well, huh? You just screwed your own argument. A definition of rape is certainly legitimate. You know, a definition of rape is certainly legitimate or not. But if there's no force present, then how can it be legitimate rape? This is the epistemological dilemma, the crisis that they always find themselves in when they, when they you know, have, have, have to work with these words. And then subject to public smears and, 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 and political attacks. But his comment speaks to the truth of the matter that different people with different interests define the, wor the, the word rape in completely different ways. Funk and Wagnalls defines rape thusly to carry off by force, the forcible and unlawful carnal knowledge of a woman against her will. The Canadian Law Dictionary, however, makes it very interesting that rape is the offense of a male person who has sexual intercourse with a female person who is not his wife without her consent or with her consent, if the consent is extorted by means uh, of threat or fear of bodily harm, is obtained by impersonating her husband, or, or, or personating her husband, rather, or is obtained by false and fraudulent representations as to the nature and quality of the act. You just stop right there. Did you mm -hmm. say, who is not his wife? Yes. Does that mean that if he rapes his wife, that's not rape in the eyes of the law? Apparently, the way the law was written then, yes. This is older than seven years, which is, which is interesting, this definition. <laughs> Under the Criminal Code of Canada, the offense is punishable with imprisonment for life, though, as well, just as it is in the States. In certain circumstances, even though the female person gave her consent voluntarily, the man can be convicted of rape. This is sometimes loosely called statutory rape. Under the Criminal Code of Canada, a male person who has sexual intercourse with a female person who is not his wife and is under the age of 14 is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to prison, imprisonment for life. 
Similarly, if a man has sexual intercourse with a female person who is not his wife and who is and who he knows or has reason to believe is feeble-minded, insane, an idiot or an imbecile, the man is guilty of an indictable offense and is liable to imprisonment for five years. Hmm. Interesting. You can abuse mentally handicapped people and get a lesser sentence than you can for some... <laughs> how, how old are those laws? Um, well, that's on, that's on the statutes. They'd probably still be there, though amended slightly. And I was wondering how some of this might have changed since we now have um, gay marriage and issues where it's no longer just husband and wife in a relationship. However, what I, what I discovered is that whenever it's... Um, a woman is, not in, is incapable of rape, let's put it that way, under the law. She is capable of sexual offenses, mm-hmm. but not of rape per se. That's strictly a male-to-female thing. And I guess even if a woman raped another woman, you know, that would not be considered rape. It would be a sexual assault. Mm, how about a man raping another man, just as with I'm, the uh, uh, ambassador a, to Libya? That's a good question. I really don't know how... They use how that word for the ambassador to Libya, too. That he was raped. Yes, yeah. and and the other issue too, you know, speaking of of the use of rape as a as a power in politics, it's going on today in the Middle East. You see, mass rape in Africa, we hear about it, mm-hmm. and millions slaughtered. And you know, you talked about the news, Robert. We don't read about these things in the news. Here's something that you probably just, didn't read about in the news, and Ingrid Karlkovis told us this at the dinner that uh, we attended after our interview, and that Julian Assange. Uh, was going out with one woman as a girlfriend, and then uh, she found out that he was uh, sleeping with another girl. And so both girls went to the police station. Now, this is apparently true. I don't know. I, I haven't seen it reported. Mm-hmm. Went to the police station, and uh, the re- the police officer who they talked to was described as a feminist. And she convinced the two girls to lay rape charges against Julian Assange, even though all he did was basically uh, infidelity. Yeah. But now he's being charged with rape, so uh, it's 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 a very complex world we live in when people can do stuff like that. You know, yeah, we do have differing attitudes around the world, and even in differing situations towards this act. For example, we don't get half the public outrage over multiple and repeated rapes at the EMDC. Yes, you know, as we do over a single incident involving one person in their private home. And there are people who are willing to, to write off some of these mass rapes as cultural norm of other cultures, because that's what they do there kind of thing, right? And so, these continue unabated in conflicts everywhere from the Mideast to Africa. And on the other side of the scale, you've got the definition of rape expanding into unwanted sex. So, we have to be careful. And... Uh, you know, there's another take back the night march, I guess, planned for the city of London over the next few days or so. I think it might be tonight. And w- women only preferred, as it is considered to be a symbolic gesture of women being able to walk alone without the protection of a male. To which I say, yes, that's very symbolic indeed. <laughs> and that's it for another week as we wrap up another show of Just Right. Join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you there. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Boris and I went to a sensitivity session where we found out that I'm sensitive to criticism and he's sensitive to being hit with a chair. <laughs> <laughs>